Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Cameron Jacoby, who is currently a senior full-stack engineer at BetterUp. Cameron joins us today from San Francisco, California, in the United States. Cameron Jacoby, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Oh, that's a great question to start off with. The number one thing I would say for maintainable software is that the code is easy to read and understand. So that is by far kind of my number one characteristic that I would say. And the reason behind that is I have found that the only thing you're going to know upfront when writing code is that you're going to need to change it. So that's why I tend to prioritize code being really easy to read and understand over prioritizing something like maybe having the perfect object design or creating reusable objects up front because you kind of don't really know necessarily what you're going to need in the future. And I find that my code tends to be like a lot more procedural rather than object oriented. And that's also a bit more accessible for kind of like newer, more junior engineers to contribute. So that's sort of the main thing I would say. Other than that, maintainable software, what I found in the past tends to have good automated test coverage, prioritizes monitoring and alerting. And one point I want to make is that maintainable software, it doesn't mean zero bugs because that's pretty much impossible. We're humans writing the code. So it's not going to be bug free, but it's running at a pace where it has good monitoring, alerting. Engineers can work at a sustainable pace and easily make changes to the code. I'm curious about, you know, when you talk about monitoring and alerting, you know, outside of like an app being down, what sort of granular level do you see work well for teams? Like can you give me some like tangible examples that you felt like this was like a type of an alert that we realized we really needed and what sort of things might have led to that decision? I think this is a pattern that I largely picked up from working at Stitch Fix. We really heavily used metrics in our system. And so we used a tool called Datadog for a lot of monitoring and alerting. And we just had a metrics gem. This was in Ruby on Rails that we put in. And a lot of the metrics that we would do were almost like being able to check our work as engineers. So for example, for part of my time there, I worked on tools for our warehouses. And so some of the tools that we had, you know, warehouse associates would be picking items of clothing from the racks. And if I was making changes to the picking tool, I would make sure to put in metrics of like, just kind of counting every time they picked something. And so building visual dashboards for almost like I would call them business metrics and thinking every time you're going to release like a feature or a big change, what kind of metrics like that can you put in? So just something simple, like counting that an action has been taken. And sometimes that would be something where if I would release something behind a feature flag, turn the feature flag on and just make sure those were flowing in. So it could be kind of like a manual process to sort of check those metrics. Or over time, if you find that it's really useful to have those, you can build alerting around that. Like if the count goes down below a certain threshold, you send an automated alert that something might be wrong. And so another common area where I've seen this is if you're working on more like customer facing features, and there's some sort of purchasing aspect to the site, like 
number of purchases that have been made or like number of like hits to this certain page. So those kinds of things where you're sort of monitoring more like the behavior of people that are using the systems, but a certain behavior is indicating that it's up and working. It's interesting because I was thinking about, you mentioned, you know, bringing up like a workflow that if someone's going into a warehouse to pick up some items to ship or something and is the metrics, was it kind of like led from, is that particular human process being done or is it more of a, in tandem, like is this feature being used or is it broken or something else is going on? It's just an interesting thing because those also seem like more like operational metrics about just how things are, you know, fulfillment. I'm, I'm assuming kind of falls under maybe, a, I'm making an assumption there about the language you might have used at Stitch Fix, but where's that balance between is this useful information for the developers versus just for useful information for the business on like, is there actually a lot of parallels there? I wouldn't say it was necessarily the same thing as operational reporting for the business. Ideally, those numbers should like align somewhat, but they might be slightly different for various reasons. So we found that having those kind of real-time dashboards were sometimes interesting for our stakeholders. So maybe like a warehouse manager or someone like that. But it was also just a good practice as engineers to figure out, like you said, like, is the system being used? If it's not being used, is there a reason why or is it actually down? And so it also the strategy kind of goes hand in hand with we had a distributed systems architecture at Stitch Fix. So by the time I left there, there were over 100 different apps and services it was pretty difficult to run them locally. And we also didn't have staging environments because that was just too much of a burden to maintain double the amount of environments. And so something like this metrics approach kind of went hand in hand with how we tested in production. So we were doing a lot of feature flagging and there wasn't a lot of like running code locally or testing it in a staging environment. So this was one way to kind of turn your feature on, see some metrics flow through, make sure that it's working correctly. Interesting. Yeah, I wanted to touch on the topic around staging environments. And I suppose if it's complicated enough just to have a local environment when you've got like 100 microservices involved in an application, I feel like that just brings up a lot of curiosities from someone that tends to live more in the land of the monolith. And like, it's just like, how do you think about onboarding people into those types of environments and like knowing what they can work on? So in those, were you typically working on a set of microservices or were you and your team responsible for a subset of that? or is it kind of like all over where you were just jumping around in different areas quite frequently? That's a great question. And it kind of evolved when I was there. So I was at Stitch Fix for four years. When I originally started, there were maybe about 10 to 15 different Rails applications. And these were more like full stack applications, like UI apps with a front end and a back end. And there was a super interesting architecture where we never had a monolith, but we had a shared database. And so all of these different internal tools and the customer facing application connected to a shared database, which was a way to move faster and kind of avoid having to create microservices when you're just like a smaller or medium-sized company that can cause a lot of friction <laughs> if you're trying to go towards microservices right away. But I think the fact that we had these separated 
Rails apps, each covering like a different domain of the business and each responsible for by a different engineering team. That kind of naturally created some of the boundaries. And so then when microservices were introduced, it was sort of like you were saying, like a team was kind of responsible for a set of services. And that doesn't just happen overnight. It was a, a big transition to get there. And I think one thing that I look back on that the Stitch Fix engineering team did really well was really investing in a strong platform team to build tooling around these microservices so that it was easy to spin one up, get it in production. They were all built exactly the same way. We had a microservice generator that we could just run a command in the terminal. And so there wasn't a lot of, you didn't have to reinvent the wheel every time. And so that took a couple of times of getting the first few services up and running and then figuring out where the patterns were, automating some of that process. But I think the challenge was kind of like I was mentioning before, and like you were asking about onboarding new people, the running code locally, I think was not the easiest. And that that might be something that they've solved now since I've left. But we sort of just really invested in automated testing and also then feature flagging and testing in production, as opposed to, you know, if you have an API that's calling out to five other APIs, like we just didn't really set that up locally for the most part. But I think the pattern that the team was moving towards, and maybe they have this now, is that each service would ship with a mock service. And so that's something that I think could work. But we weren't quite there yet when I was on the team. Out of curiosity, when they made that transition from the, I think maybe you said four or five Rails apps to a hundred plus potentially microservices, was there still a reliance on a single database or did that eventually get split up across a hundred databases? Yeah. So it was still in progress when I was there of splitting up the shared database, but the strategy that was implemented was that you couldn't add anything to the shared database and you couldn't add any more connections to it. So it still existed and the tables that kind of were originally in there, like it took a while to like get those extracted out, but each new microservice would have its own private database. And so if it needed something shared, actually there was kind of a small set of microservices that did have access to the shared database. And so the way that that worked is that they could read from it, but they needed to then like basically cache that info in their private database. And then other microservices could connect to that other service kind of as an interface. But, you know, I think just actually getting to the point where tables can be dropped, like that takes a long time. <laughs> When, you know, preparing for this conversation, you know, we, we had, a, had a little back and forth ahead of time. And you mentioned that while your time at Stitch Fix, you were kind of involved in a pretty long-term refactoring project. Could you talk a little bit about what that process looked like in terms of like what sort of steps you took to assess the situation? Yeah, this came to mind kind of when you were also asking about the structure of the team and whether or not we were working on sort of small subsets of services. I had a very unique experience while I was there that I was working on kind of a more horizontal team sort of in my last like year and a half, two years there. So I was part of a special projects team to launch Stitch Fix in the UK. And so there were, I think, 
nine or 10 of us on that team. And our goal was to basically go through all of these applications, all of the microservices that existed. So about a hundred at that point and make all the changes necessary to get the business ready for international expansion. And so the first project we worked on for that, that I was a part of is basically converting everywhere we stored money to be able to handle a different currency (laughs) rather than US dollars. And so that was like quite a feat that we needed to accomplish. It was an e-commerce business. So there was a lot of money being stored in the system. And also being an e-commerce business, we, you know, like bought inventory from vendors. So it's not just the selling side, like we're also capturing the purchases of our inventory. And so to answer your question of how do we go about that? I mean, the first step was really just a manual audit of where do we store money in the system? And so that would be storing it at the database level, that would be sending it in an API response, and that would be displaying it in a UI. So we looked at all three of those levels and just did a full audit. And we kind of went sort of like section by section. So where in the merchandising systems did this exist? And then in the warehouse systems, styling, customer experience, and then customer facing side. So we kind of had these like business domains where we could go one by one and do that audit. And then we really just like did some research of how should money be stored in a system. I think a lot of US companies that are just starting out in the US, you know, if you had $10, you would store it in the database as like 10 as a float and then no currency symbol. And so we actually learned that we needed to first store a currency code and that we should not be storing money as floats because you can get floating point errors from rounding. And so it should be stored as integers in cents. (laughs) So $10 would become a thousand cents. So that's kind of the migration we had to go through. And then we basically just like picked one place where money was stored in the application and we did that migration end to end. And so what that looked like was adding additional database columns. And so for a long time, you are storing it in two formats. And so basically dual writing, and then you can switch over all the places that read from that database. We put a lot of logging in to kind of check like, has everything been converted over to the new format? And so what we did is we did that twice for two different systems. And then we built a Ruby gem that would give teams like some tooling around doing this migration themselves. So we went out and did the auditing and then did a couple examples, provided the tooling and then gave that to other teams to be able to convert their systems over. So that's, that's sort of like the brief overview of what the process was like. No, that's interesting. And I think that particular example is a good one for the listeners to think about because it's, it is a pretty common thing to introduce that into money, you know, some sort of payment subscription service or when you're selling products or something. And that can be an interesting challenge. And I remember back in the day when we were always debating floats or decimal type columns, and it's like maybe the answer was neither. And then also wondering like what the future of currency may or may not look like. You know, at some point, might we get to this weird more than two decimal points in some currencies? I'm not an expert on this stuff, but curious about that and how you like make that scale one way or another, depending on, you know, the currency. It was a really interesting problem to dig into. And it definitely was like quite a lot of work to transition it over. But I also think we had the opinion amongst the engineering team and leadership and even the the business side of things that like it wasn't necessarily a mistake that had been made at the beginning. Because again, going back to what I said earlier, like you kind of don't know what the future is going to look like and how 
your code should be like supporting that future. And so it wasn't this thing where we were thinking, oh, we totally did this wrong. It was more like, well, we did what we needed to do to fit the needs of the business at the time. And now that's changing. And then the other thing I'll say on that to touch on what I said earlier, one of the things that made this kind of manual audit that we did at the beginning a lot easier was again, like readable code and naming that made sense. And so we were able to search our code bases, you know, do a little bit of like minimal automation of just looking for fields that had the word price, like things like that. You know, it sounds very obvious, but I think it is worth calling out that just that readability, good naming, just really clear code is going to help you down the line when you might have to make a big change like the one that I'm talking about. That reminds me, my company, we work on Ruby on Rails applications, coincidentally, and we inherit a lot of projects. And so I was helping a developer recently. They had been trying to figure out because it was a client that's an insurance company, they were introducing a new currency. Sounds familiar. And they were like, we're trying to figure out where this thing on this web page seems to be rendering it, you know, with the dollar symbol, but we needed to have like it in pounds, but we can't figure out where this is even coming from. And it was like, took this whole rabbit whole process of being like, okay, it's not in the Rails, anywhere obviously in the Rails code, it's not in the database. We're like, where is this coming from? And we found it was like in some JavaScript helper that someone had wrote that would spit out like the currency stuff. And we're like, it was completely disconnected from what we where we're looking and we're like yeah that's that's an interesting thing it took a long time to even get to figure out like where is this happening because we just couldn't figure it out anyways no that definitely makes sense and that goes back to like maybe the code was readable but it wasn't clear what the system was doing that's another part of maintainable software is like trying to make sure nothing is like hidden in a way that can't be found later and of course it's never going to be perfect like that that stuff comes up all the time but just having that mindset as you're going through and building something like can someone discover this later when they're going to need to make a change We'll be back with our interview with Cameron in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, yada, 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 you know the drill. Head over to Apple Podcasts, write a review, leave us a rating. If you're not sure what to write for your review, just mention one of your favorite guests. Just say, Robbie, had a really good interview with Cameron. I enjoyed the conversation. I learned some useful things. Other people should listen to this. That would make a great podcast review. Another one could be, I gave it two stars. Robbie's got a weird voice and needs to stay focused and needs to work on his interview questions. Fair point, but I will take it. Give me the two-star review. Anyways, you just go find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you can apparently rate Apple Podcasts or podcasts. Or Why aren't there more places in Apple Podcasts to review podcasts? I don't know. But anyways, that just tends to be the place where people seem to go look. Also, is there someone you think I should have on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now let's get back to our interview with Cameron Jacoby. So another topic that I was looking forward to diving in with you was, in particular, you know, you talked a little bit about working across different microservices and such, but I know that you're also a big advocate for going on call. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Maybe you could share with us some of the key learnings you've gathered from being an on-call person, like maybe talk about what that looks like in your, because I know a lot of developers are like, they will ask like, how on-call do I need to be for this particular role? And like, maybe you can share a little bit about that. Yes. Thank you for asking. I love talking about this. So part of my time on that Stitch Fix UK project is that 
I got the amazing opportunity to get to go live in the UK for six months. But the caveat with this job, I think the caveat for most people at least was that you had to be on call the whole time. So that's what the job was, was to go over and support the launch. And it was a rotation that the engineering team set up for two engineers to be on call for the warehouses. And so kind of the deal was you were primary on call during working hours. And that was a bit of a unique setup for Stitch Fix at the time because, you know, typically it was an on-call rotation where you were just on call for your team's like specific services, but it was around the clock. It was it was 24-7. And so what we were doing is two engineers at a time, we would be primary and secondary, and we would just cover on-call for like the UK business hours. But it was also like all of the apps and services for the warehouse. And at that point, it, it was split up within different teams. So the regular US on-call, they wouldn't cover all of the apps and services. So at that point, I had had quite a bit of experience already just on various teams at Stitch Fix doing on-call for whatever team I was on and I knew I really enjoyed it and so I wasn't necessarily like scared of taking that role but it was a huge challenge so when I got there there were about 50 applications at that point including the microservices that were like operating the warehouse some of them were in go which I didn't know go at the time and so it was a huge challenge for me but Really, what I learned out of that was that, and this is for me personally, it might not apply to everyone, but the best way for me to just like hone my problem solving skills and also get to know how systems work and how they fit together is when there's some sort of bug or problem or urgent outage in front of me. And so I just think my debugging skills and just my problem solving skills in general got so much stronger, particularly just in that six month time. And so that's the first thing I would say about kind of the benefits of going on call is that I think I'm able to debug a lot faster and you start to gain an intuition about like what could be wrong with this thing when you get paged or when a bug report comes in or something like that. You just start to kind of have a sense of where should I look? Like, should I look at the system metrics? Like, could it be a memory or CPU? Is it happening? in web? Is it happening like in a background job worker? Is this a problem that something has been introduced into the database that the application layer wasn't prepared for? Is it coming from an API? Like you just sort of get to gain that sense. And so that's one thing is just like honing my own problem solving skills. The second massive benefit that I feel like I gained from that time being on call was just, it actually has completely changed the way that I write code and think about shipping my code to production. And so what do I mean by that? So when you're on primary on call for six months and at the end of that pager (laughs) every single day for six months, you start to realize like, yes, even for me who I do enjoy the debugging process and being on call, it is very stressful to get paged. And so it started to shift my mindset. Like when I'm writing code, I'm always thinking about what is the smallest change I can put in production to solve this problem. And it has to be item potent. So that is like the most important lesson that I've learned is always ship small item potent changes. So if you're working on a big project, like some sort of big migration. So like the currency, for example, is is a good example of this. Shipping it in small changes just means that everything you push out to production is backwards compatible until you can be sure that you can switch it over. So small item potent changes. And then the other thing is, so I don't know if this is overkill, but every time I merge a pull request and deploy something, 
I am like sitting there monitoring and expecting something to go wrong. And so it has given me such a sense of personal responsibility when shipping my code. And so when I merge something, like I don't just like leave. And I mean, you know, it takes time. And so sometimes you switch to something else, but I'm always like waiting for it to deploy. And I always have a plan of what am I going to do if this doesn't work? which that could be fine, right? Especially if it's just like behind a feature flag or whatever, you might just need to iterate on it or if it breaks something and it's really severe. And so you need to have a rollback plan every single time you ship code. And so I hear a lot about, oh, well, this is a small change. This isn't a risky change. It doesn't matter how many small or non-risky changes have you seen that actually cause outages. Like that's usually where it comes from because you didn't expect it. And so every single time I ship code, I expect something to go wrong and I know what I'm going to do if it does go wrong. And so expanding on that a little bit, if you're working in a really complicated system, so potentially a monolith or distributed systems, there actually might not be a super easy way to roll back depending on what your infrastructure is. Like if a lot of code is going into production, I don't know that it's like the best idea to roll back one commit because you don't know what's kind of coming after it necessarily. So again, this goes back to feature flagging your code, kind of having a way to safely test it out in production. And it's not fail safe. Again, you're a human writing this code, writing the feature flag, something could still go wrong. But I try to think about ways where I can toggle my feature on and off after it's already in production and not have to rely on like such a brute force rollback process for that. That's interesting. Do you, when it comes to thinking around talking about debugging skills and building that sense of like intuition, I feel like it's really complicated to teach people this particular aspect of software development. And, you know, I'll get pulled into, I mentioned that story earlier. When I do help out on projects these days, it tends to be when someone's like, they've gone down and they've just some rabbit holes and they're like, I, I need someone else just to get a second set of eyes. I'm like a little bit of a rubber duck for them. And then, you know, come in and then it's just like, eventually maybe we figure it out together after spending a couple hours or something debugging things. And there's this interesting thing that they're always like, especially more people that are more junior that are like, want to learn how to be more self-reliant. And they'll ask me questions like, how did you learn to do this? Or do you have any advice on like, is there books I can go read on this? Or, you know, and I'm like, I wish I'm like, they come out of a boot camp or something like that, where they were trained on how to build things or add new little features. And, and things like that. But when it comes to like debugging weird things that could, you mentioned, it could be the web layer, it could be backend API, it could be the database, it could be the browser you're using, it could be some weird CDN issue or something happening in Nginx or Apache and they're on the web server and they don't even really know what that is. Or it could be a DNS problem. It's like, how do you pick these things up? But I'm like, I don't know how to, where to point you to outside of like, just try to keep notes or try to be a pattern recognizer, spot things over time and don't be so hard on yourself. But like, I mean, I don't remember what 20 plus years ago Robbie developer looks like day to day, but I remember spending a lot of time just trying a lot of things out and eventually maybe things clicked, but it wasn't like I was trained on that. It was just like, I just had to figure it out. And do you have advice for people listening? They're like, yeah, I've, I want to learn more about this, but maybe is it trying to volunteer to be on call or what sort of advice would you give to someone that's trying to, wants to hone those skills, but there's maybe not literature available on how to go about doing that. Or maybe there is, and I'm just not aware of it. And I would say the same thing. Maybe there is literature available and I'm not aware of it either because that tends to not 
necessarily be my process. So what I'm going to say might be frustrating because my short answer is that it does just take practice and it does take that time, like you're saying, but there is a more actionable piece of advice that I can give in that too. So you mentioned, is it volunteering to be on call, like things like that. And so I think the thing that helped me the most was early in my career, getting experience working on like non-urgent bugs. So for someone who's junior or newer to the team or whatever, like probably don't like throw them into the pager duty mix, like primary on call right away. I think you don't want to give someone like a super negative experience necessarily. But one thing I found that was really helpful is that if you can introduce someone to an on-call rotation and actually give them the space to fix those non-urgent bugs. So what that means is you can say, okay, you're on call to fix low to medium urgency bugs for a week and you're not working on your like regular like project roadmap work. And that part is really important because I think a lot of on-call rotations, you're hoping that a lot of bugs and issues don't come in so you can like reach all your other deadlines. And so what ends up happening is that if you get some sort of like bug report, you'll look at it and you'll say, oh, well, like I didn't write this code. I'm going to like find the person on my team who wrote this code because they're going to be able to fix it faster. And so what I would recommend is don't do that. And so if you're managing a team or something like that, actually put the structure in where the person who's on call can spend the time to try to investigate bugs and issues themselves. And so then if you're that person doing it and you get a bug that comes in, you know, kind of low to medium urgency, spend about half a day trying to fix it yourself. And you can reach out to your teammates with questions But don't just punt the bug over to someone else. Like it really is okay, especially if you're junior, spend a half a day on it. If nothing else like more urgent is breaking, this is absolutely going to help your problem solving and debugging skills. And then when you're working on your regular feature work later, you're going to be a lot faster if you kind of like put in the time to fix those things. And so that's what I would recommend. I think most teams have some sort of setup where, you know, they can get reports through the customer experience team, or if you're working on internal tools, whoever your stakeholders are, are just like sending you kind of bug reports. And so try as much as you can to just get experience fixing those kinds of things. It's still going to be scary sort of the first time you're dealing with more of an outage, but that's something where you can maybe shadow someone the first time. But getting experience fixing those bugs and it's just practice and it does get easier <laughs> over time. You know, you mentioned you know, thinking about that for you know people that are coming up and don't have a lot of exposure to working on bugs and such yet. And then you also reference like organizations that will give space to their junior developers and time, most importantly, to explore and sort these things out. Something I've reflected on about myself over the years and I'm really working on is I know that I enjoy fixing problems more than I like building new things typically. So I'm more of a mender. And so sometimes I'll see conversations happening in like a Slack channel between a couple developers and I'm just like, oh, I want to dive in and not that I want to fix it for them, but I'm just like, I can see them going down a rabbit hole that seems maybe not the way I would approach it. But do you have any advice for people like me that like want to let people spend time, but also don't want them to then waste their time necessarily if they're, if you know fully well that like, I've seen the conversation, I can tell you that it's probably over here. When do you inject yourself into that conversation? Or when do you stand back and be like, just let them figure it out for a while? Because I think if I go into those conversations, like if you two, like I have a theory, if you want to hear it, I don't know, think that anyone would ever say, 
I would love to hear your theory, but this is a balance of like not jumping into the conversation, basically bulldozing it away, or at least trying to help remove that problem for them and so they can get on with their happy lives. Yeah. So in terms of making sure you're giving people space for the learning opportunity, but like you mentioned, you don't, you don't want them to be spinning forever. Right. And so I've thought about this, I think more like related to myself in terms of like my own threshold for like, is this taking me too long? Should I ask for help? So my answer is kind of coming at it from the other end, as opposed to like observing people going down a rabbit hole, but just like me personally, sort of like if I'm in a rabbit hole, like being very honest with myself about like, am I learning from this? And should I keep going? Or am I just like wasting my time? And I think that's kind of why I say going back to the advice about getting experience with bugs. That's why I kind of put that like half a day sort of and that's not going to be like perfect for everything. That's again, for maybe a more junior person who is like dedicated to fixing bugs for the week. But for myself, if I'm getting really stuck, and it's been like two hours, I just kind of hit this point where I'm like, I need to like ask for help. And so I think to go back to your actual question, Robbie, of like, what should you do? Sort of should you jump in if you notice people going down a rabbit hole? I think think about like who who the person is, what level they are in their career. And do you think they would kind of benefit from like working through that themselves? And that might not be the most like actionable or satisfying advice for you. But I think if it's someone with like, 15 20 years of experience and like they just are kind of getting stuck on something but you know they have these skills and they're just not like looking in the right place I think just like help them out but if it's someone who's just starting out that's super valuable for them to like honestly just like spin for a couple hours and go through that process so I think it does have a little bit to do with the experience of the person and also like just like that person's own personal learning goals no, that makes a lot of sense. That's good advice. I think the other, just like as you were talking, something that think about time boxing yourself in some way and be like, okay, at this point, I'm going to reach out. One thing, like just thinking about some of my own experiences of seeing when people would raise a concern or something, they're, you know, they're maybe needing some help. Like, hey, can anyone have experience with this? I'm like, what I don't know necessarily often is how much time they had spent getting to the point now that they're ready to reach out to people because they might have already spent a half day or multiple days potentially working on that. And so you don't always know the context prior to the Slack message that they posted in whatever channel that they're working in and maybe asking people to add a little bit, hey, I've spent a couple hours on this and I'm hitting my head. I need help versus like, I think if you just throw that little detail in there, I wonder if that would help like other people like want to help out right now or agree they probably shouldn't spend a lot more time on that. I don't know if that's unnecessary helpful information, but it is a, a tricky thing to navigate, I suppose, when you don't know. Yeah. And one thing you can ask, like, I think that is always helpful to have that detail. But another way you can frame it is just sort of asking or coaching the team to sort of mention, like, what have you tried already? And then you, as someone coming into the conversation, can sort of almost like infer, has that time box been reached? Like, it won't be perfect, but I think that's a way to gauge, like, where are they at in the debugging process when they're asking for help? Hey, it's me again, Robbie. Did you know that we have a new newsletter for Maintainable? That's right. If you head over to maintainable.fm, there's a link in the top navigation that says newsletter. If you subscribe to that, we'll send you emails about the new episodes, but I've also included a lot of emails into a queue, like a scheduled thing, where I will talk about past episodes because I think this is in my 150s episodes right now. So there's a lot of great interviews and conversations I've had in you know over the last 150 episodes. And I want to highlight them because I don't think everybody's listened to every single one of these 
these episodes. So head again over to maintainable.fm, click on the newsletter button and give us your email address. And we promise not to spam you, but it's another way I can reach out to you because not everybody's hanging out on social media these days. With that, let's get back to our interview with Cameron. I want to return back to another topic you mentioned earlier around feature flags and such and the complexity with the local development and specifically staging environments. I know that you seem to have like a pretty strong opinion about staging environments maybe not being worth the energy and time, but like I also work in an environment where our clients and our product owners see a staging environment as this like, I'm air quoting, safe place to test things and ideas before they push things up to production. So how do you get everybody in a space that they feel more comfortable? I'm assuming with like a lot of feature flags in a production environment and you're kind of like testing out ideas and concepts. In production. Yeah. I should definitely clarify up front that I've sort of mentioned this a couple times, but most of my experience is working on internal tools. And so I will say that my opinions are like largely shaped by that. And I do acknowledge that it is a little bit different. I I don't have a ton of experience working on customer facing features. So my customers tend to be just like my other coworkers who work on different teams. And so there is inherently just like a little bit more comfort with that because they're more willing to just sort of take like a URL with another parameter in it and sort of see like a new feature behind a feature flag that way. And I do think it probably is like a little bit more sensitive when you're working on something for, you know, your actual customers or clients of the application. So I'll say that up front, but then I think, yeah, the way it happened at Stitch Fix was just... It was like a combination of different factors. So again, just like moving to the more distributed architecture and not being able to maintain double the amount of systems. And then so staging environments, they typically cannot have parity with production in terms of the data. So there can be, you know, all your like customers data is in the production database. Like you can't really make a copy of that and put it into staging. I think like there probably are safe ways to do that, but generally it's best to like limit sort of where that information lives. And so just different factors like that kind of making it difficult to maintain. And then the other thing is making sure API keys are not being shared between staging and production. So all of these factors kind of came together. And I think there was a bit of the realization of like, well, staging is not production. So we're spending all this time maintaining it. It doesn't have the same data. Like the external API connections are always broken because like we're using different sets of keys that people forget about. And again, with the like distributed systems, I think it just was like too much of a burden. And so I think the just like the decision came a bit more out of necessity and just like where can we spend our time and people's comfort level increased along the way sort of as a result. So that's kind of how it happened. That's sort of how I've seen it happen. And the other thing I'll say about staging environments and then sort of like API keys is that I have definitely seen situations where staging was using production API keys just to sort of make it achieve like more parity with the production environment. And sometimes that can actually cause outages or unexpected behavior. Like if you're running something on staging and it's for example, like actually sending emails to people's real email addresses. And I mean, that would happen if you had 
the same API keys and then also a copy of the data, but like that stuff does happen. And so I found that actually maintaining staging and all that entails can cause more problems and even potentially outages than it's worth. I have never actually seen it really like preventing outages, (laughs) to be totally honest. But having some sort of preview environment for your customers, I think that could absolutely fit different teams use cases. And again, just coming from internal tools, there was more comfort with sort of just like making sure something was feature flagged on production and letting people use that. Now, I think the context there around that being more of internal facing tools for your organization, that definitely changes things. I can understand why it might feel a lot more comfortable in there to do that. And then when you're shipping things out into the public and you're like the nervousness around all that, but you make a good point that it's not like staging is production. And so there's things that happen in production that you can't reproduce locally or in staging. And and sometimes you need to figure out the problem and in a production like environment or in production. And it's an interesting challenge for sure. And it kind of reminds me there's one specific type of change that I have not actually quite figured out like a great way to test it either in production or another environment. And, you know, I'd be curious to know if any listeners have good solutions for this, but particularly in Rails applications, dependency updates. And I'm sure that applies in a lot of different tech stacks as well. But that's one thing where I can't say that I really have a solution of like testing it safely in production. But again, I'm not sure that a staging environment is the best place for that either because again staging it's it's not production it is going to act a little bit differently so that's something that I still feel like a little bit stumped on when I think about oh how can we safely like ship and test our changes in production and is that like a, like a ruby gem type of dependency update or something yeah sometimes you just don't know and I think especially if it's affecting the front end in some way ideally you would have automated tests running, but typically running automated tests with JavaScript can be pretty slow. And so that's a bit of a trade-off between you can't necessarily have every view like fully tested. So that's a tough one for sure. I think that's another thing to consider though, when you're pushing the updates out and when things might go wrong, building up that intuition is like, oh, did something, did a gem get updated? And is there now weird compatibility, but our tests didn't cover it? If like the build passed, great, we should feel comfortable, but then something breaks and you're like, what changed? And you're like, oh, it was like a minor version of a gem updated. It can't be that, can it be? Sometimes that can be really difficult to debug as well. Some good thoughts there for folks. So I have a couple kind of quick last questions for you. And one of them, you know, thinking around, we didn't get to talk a lot about technical debt necessarily, just like evolving and refactoring decisions that the team had made in the past on projects like using the conversation around currency and stuff. But for people that are listening, that are working on a team and maybe they've accumulated some of these decisions, but they've not figured out a good strategy or been able to prioritize improving the situation and maybe they've asked for time, but but I've heard not right now, maybe a few too many times and they're kind of thinking, well, should I stop asking, you know, about these things? What advice could you offer them to help make some change today rather than saying, maybe I should go look for another job where the grass is greener over there and maybe they're going to prioritize these types of things. What kind of advice could you offer them? Again, this answer just comes from my experience. So other people might have different perspectives, but What I've seen is it is pretty difficult to get technical debt prioritized just for the sake of getting rid of technical debt. So you have to tie it back to a business metric, I think, if you want to get buy-in. And so one thing I've seen that slows down a lot of teams would be like flaky tests in your build 
And so that's something where you can say, like, we're losing this many hours a week waiting for these things to deploy or just like dealing with rerunning our builds or just and it, it doesn't have to be perfect. But that's that's one way to quantify it is just sort of saying, like, we're this much slower because of these, you know, we need to take like half a sprint and like have like two people just like work on these things. And so something like that, where it's like, it's not like a massive investment. Like if you think you can make progress, like if you prioritize it kind of in one sprint and you sort of make that case, I think that's good. The other thing I would say is like, if things are breaking all the time because of lack of tests, so kind of like a different issue, that is, I think, a harder sell to sort of go to the business and say, we need to like take a few weeks and just like write all these tests. And so again, just in my experience, what I've learned is that has to be a little bit more of just like a mindset shift for the team. And so you need to build that into your estimates, just need to be adding new test coverage along the way. And so that's a tougher one, I think, to say, like, we need to address this tech debt with like dedicated time. And then if you're talking about tech debt, like more of like a monolith or like the shared database that I was mentioning, and there's something really large that needs to happen, like splitting it up into microservices, that's a much bigger initiative that definitely the business needs like buy-in on. And again, that's something that it does have to be tied to some sort of like business outcome. And usually I think, again, going back to the example of like flaky tests, you could probably say like, we're moving this much slower because it's difficult to work with this thing. But then the important thing with that is that if you can get the buy-in, you need to work incrementally so that all other work is not halted. You can't have every engineer then just, okay, we're just migrating everything to microservices. Maybe have one team make one microservice and everyone else just kind of continues their work. So it's a balance for sure. I don't think it's realistic to have like a ton of dedicated time and space to address tech debt. And so going back to some of the things that I was saying at the beginning, one thing you can do as an individual that's, I think, very empowering in solving this problem. Well, there's actually two things. So every time you're working on something, just make sure it's fully tested. And if there were holes in existing tests, add a couple more that you think you would feel confident about for your future. And then the second thing is just make sure that your code is self-documenting and really readable. And if you're doing those two things, like every time you're working over time, I do believe that it will improve your code base rather than having everyone have to come to a halt and like clean everything up all at once. That's a lot of really good advice there and got me thinking a little bit around how it's complicated to debug, to build up this intuition for debugging things. It's also really difficult, I think, for people to think about how do you start introducing, say, automated tests in an environment or a team culture where that hasn't been prioritized in the past. And if you're a junior or mid-level person, you may not have a lot of exposure to that outside of maybe if this stuff already existed, but to be the person that starts making the changes to introduce these things, there's also maybe a gap in, I'm assuming, in literature on like, how do you start improving this situation, the test coverage situation? Because like, I've never seen an example where someone said, why did you spend the time to write tests for this? Like, I've never seen that be a problem. And I don't think a product manager somewhere is saying like, please don't write tests. They want you to test the code. They want you to know it works. That's part of the job. One way, whether you're manually testing it or, you know, producing automated tests for that. So it's this interesting thing where when you come back later on to try to ask for time to do this, like, well, we haven't been doing this. It becomes this like interesting, it's more like a team culture problem where it's like, it's your responsibility to do this if you think it's important, I suppose. But again, it's just one of those things. If you're someone on the team that does know how to do these things and you're not doing it because of your team, like just start, hopefully, I think you're advocating, just start doing it. But if you don't have these skills, find someone that can help you start figuring that out, maybe. 
Yeah, it is the shift for sure. And I think it just kind of reminds me of like when I first joined Stitch Fix, I was really junior and there was very strong testing culture there from the beginning. And the app that I was working in had a lot of these capybara feature tests. And those can be like pretty intimidating and hard to work with for a junior person. And I hadn't really, I had written like some basic unit tests with RSpec before that, but I had never really worked with Capybara. And I just remember like spending hours like trying to get these tests to pass that I was writing, but it's just, it can be kind of finicky with the browser and everything. And so there was a huge learning curve for me. And I think I definitely was like in the trap in the beginning of, oh, like my work is done, but I just have to write tests. Like, no, you're not done if you haven't written the tests. And over time, I think I got more experience personally. And I also learned that unit tests are a lot cheaper just in terms of like they're a lot quicker to run they're quicker to write and so my process personally which I think is useful to share with others is that every single like edge case that could happen is tested in unit tests and so in Rails like all of the public methods and the models will have quite a lot of unit tests for kind of every single scenario (laughs) that could be happening and then just sort of like a couple like end-to-end feature tests for whatever page or feature, just sort of testing like the happy path flow and any like service object that you're using sort of at the controller level or like the model level that would also have the unit tests for full edge cases. And so, I mean, it is kind of like a personal journey, I think, to get the experience and then also develop your style. But I would say the advice I can give for maybe more senior people on the team that have the experience but just haven't been doing it, I would argue that I don't think it'll add that much extra time delivering a feature like especially just just focus on some unit tests first and if you have the skills I think that would be a great way to start modeling it for the team and it's not even really something you have to communicate to product managers or the business if you're just going to start out with like let's just add a few unit tests each time we do this I don't think it should add a lot of extra time. Some good advice for folks. So a couple of quick last questions for you, Cameron. Where can listeners, I know you're, you're not big on social media or blogging. So where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations on software development online? Yeah, thanks for asking. Like you mentioned, yeah, I'm not very social on the internet. <laughs> I find that social media tends to be a little exhausting, but I do love to chat more about these topics and also just connect with people. So feel free to email me at cameron.jacoby at gmail.com. I also have a website, CameronJacoby.com. I don't post a ton on there, but it does have links to some past conference talks that I've given. Oh, excellent. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for everybody and your email address for those I want to reach out. And it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Cameron. Thank you so much for stopping by to talk shop. Thank you again for having me.